I'll try again. The subject of the talk this evening is where does happiness come from? I think this is a important question for us to reflect on because the whole journey is about happiness. The Buddha framed it in the Four Noble Truths as the end of suffering, but that's just different language for the development of happiness. When suffering ends, there is something in our hearts and minds, there's something in our nature that brings happiness forth. So we don't have to think of these as two separate questions, but when suffering ends, happiness is present, or we can talk about it as the development of happiness. When I look around the world, I see such a wide range of happiness in the people that I meet and, and see. And it's always been curious to me, why is that range the way it is? Is happiness just something random and mysterious and unpredictable? And some people are blessed with it and other people are not. Does it all have to do with our parents? You know, that would be a convenient explanation, but uh, hopefully that's not the final word. Is it sort of fatalistic or some kind of destiny that we can never really figure out or understand? So I think as, as practitioners, hopefully we all understand our journey as being about the development of happiness, the movement to happiness. And the question is, what makes that journey possible? What makes it work? Because happiness is a very important concept in Dharma practice, not just in current sort of popular expressions, but all the way back to the words of the Buddha. This quality of happiness comes in again and again. Although the Buddha talked about the end of suffering and used that kind of, you might say, negative language, there are also a lot of words for the beautiful states of happiness of heart and mind in the suttas and in the Pali. Just to mention a few, because I know that you're familiar with some of these, the word sukha uh, is usually translated directly as happiness. And for me, it kind of means a, a very settled kind of contentment. Not necessarily a bubbly or overflowing happiness, but a very settled contented state of mind. And I like the association of sukha with sugar. You know, maybe the same root, I'm not sure, but the sweetness of sugar is kind of suggested by this word sukha. It has a sweet quality of contentment. The word piti, which I think a lot of you know, it's in the seven factors of enlightenment. It's often translated as rapture, is a meditative quality when the mind discovers a, a delight in being with the meditation subject. So it's sometimes translated as a joyful interest. When we connect with our experience in a way that it makes it come alive and is delightful, that's a factor of piti in the mind, one of the enlightenment factors. There's the word ananda, which means bliss, which you hear as the, Buddha's, the name of the Buddha's companion a very sweet monk that Sally mentioned the other day. And this word appears in a lot of monks and nuns' names. There are a group of nuns living in San Francisco. I don't know if you've had the good fortune to meet them yet. Uh, they're under an umbrella organization called Sara Naloka. 
they intend to establish a permanent nun's residence, hopefully in the Bay Area or Northern California. I think very inspiring for a lot of women practitioners to see the, the nun sangha taking root here. And one of the nuns in that community is named Ananda Bodhi, the bliss of awakening, the bliss of enlightenment. There are other words too, but I don't need to do a poly primer this evening. So just wanted to suggest that this word happiness is very important in Buddhist practice, going back to ancient times. There's a wonderful uh, modern scholar who I want to recommend to you named Bhikkhu Analayo, who is a linguist, a translator, a researcher, wrote a very wonderful book called Satipatthana. It's a commentary on the Satipatthana Sutta. And so he's a, I regard him as a very authoritative speaker on our tradition. And in the book Satipatthana, he said this of the path. He said, The entire scheme of the gradual training can be envisaged as a progressive refinement of joy. So I like this coming from a monk. But it's deeply within our tradition, this development and refinement of joy in our practice. So this question of where happiness comes from came to me strongly this past summer. I was sitting in a retreat with a teacher in the Buddhist tradition who is a monk. And I was struck many, many times during the, the time that I spent around him by the level of his happiness. It was just very apparent and tangible. It was one of the most remarkable things about him. He laughed easily. He smiled a lot. He was, very, he was very playful. I got to see him both behind the scene and in his teaching role. And in both settings, he had this uh, joy that was just very easy to touch, very contagious. And because of that, he had, a, he had a certain charisma. A lot of people uh, loved this monk. I'm not going to say who it is because I don't want to kind of foster a cult of personality, number one. And number two, I want to make some statements about him that I, I don't know how true they are. They're kind of, I want to share with you my inferences about him. So I don't want to peg it to him because I, I could not be right. But I want to be free to just kind of give you my impressions of this fellow. As I was watching him and I was so struck by the degree of his happiness, the question just came in my mind, where did that come from? How can this one person have such a strong experience and expression of happiness? And I also want to mention that uh, that is not just a subjective interpretation. He was taken to one of these MRI machines. You know how they're running tests on advanced meditators? These functional MRIs that uh, look directly at the centers of activity in the brain as one is meditating or experiencing the moment. So they, they recognize certain neural patterns as being indicative of happiness, and his numbers were off the chart for happiness, which led some people to call him the happiest person in the world. But of course we can't know that because we haven't all been tested. <laughs> so that person could be here. don't know. But at any rate, he had, a, he had a very high degree of happiness. And I started to reflect, what is that due to? 
as a practitioner, he is a, he is a practitioner himself, of course, he has had some hand in developing the happiness that he enjoys. And maybe a lot of hand in developing that level of happiness. So I started to reflect on what I understand from the Buddha's teachings about the, the growth of happiness and where it comes from. And I thought that, as I understand the teachings, there are basically five ways that the Buddha talked about happiness being developed. So those are the ways that I want to share this evening and talk about. The reason that that I want to do this is to bring happiness out of the realm of the mysterious or the random or the fatalistic or a sense of destiny and communicate my belief that happiness is achievable for each of us by following these practices. I think what the Buddha was pointing to is that we can each create the heart and mind that we wish to have, that we wish to enjoy in this life. So these are, I feel, reliable guides to developing our own happiness. And as practitioners, it's just a question of uh, faith and then effort to carry out this kind of development. So I'll name, I'll name the five first, and then I want to talk about each one of them. But before I do, I want to say, this is not an exhaustive list. There are lots of routes to happiness. I'm sure you have your favorites. Um, our good friend James has written a book and leads a class called Awakening Joy, has thousands of followers, and it's transformed people's lives. Some Buddhist principles, some principles of his own discovery. Um, that have have helped people find great measures of happiness in their lives. And they may not all fit in the five that I'm going to name tonight. So the list is broader than what I'm going to talk about. You may have your own ways. I did a, a short search on this word happiness on Amazon this evening before I came, and 20,000 results popped up in the category of books. So... There are a lot of books on this topic. In fact, uh, Sylvia told me that when she was writing one of her books, Sylvia Borstein, who teaches here, her publisher suggested a title for her and told her that the best-selling books in this kind of general field have three words in the title, um, freedom, happiness, and easy. So it's a tip for all you authors out there. So these may not all be so easy, but they are all really reliable. They've been tested for thousands of years. They do seem to work. So the five that I want to talk about tonight, in kind of uh, increasing order of happiness, are sense pleasures, merit, concentration, insight, and awakening. These are the five themes, and I'll, I want to explore each one of them in a little bit of, of detail. The first is sense pleasures, and it may seem a little odd to hear a, a Buddhist talk about sense pleasures as a valid type of happiness. 
because you probably know that uh, there are some strong warnings against sense pleasures, especially for monastics in our tradition. But let me read you the way the Buddha defined the term of sense pleasure, and you'll get a sense of um, the power of them. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya, and the Buddha was talking to his attendant, Ananda. Ananda, there are these five cords of sense pleasure. What five? Forms cognizable by the eye. That basically means sights. Forms cognizable by the eye that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, and tantalizing. Sounds cognizable by the ear, and using the same description. Odors cognizable by the nose. Tastes cognizable by the tongue. Sensations cognizable by the body that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, and tantalizing. Now, who can resist that? This is the appeal of sense pleasures. The pleasure and joy that arise in dependence on these are called sensual pleasure. So this is a big part of life as lay people. I assume for, for most of us as lay people, these five kinds of sense contact and the pleasurable quality are a big part of what makes lay life a pleasurable experience to the extent that it is. Um, I was just you know, reminded of this. Sally and I went to a museum exhibit in the fall a number of you probably saw it too. The de Young Museum in San Francisco had borrowed a lot of paintings from the Musée d'Orsay in Paris because the museum in Paris was undergoing renovation. So they divided them into two halves, and the first was called The Birth of Impressionism, and the second was The Post-Impressionists. So in September we went to see this exhibit of some of the greatest Impressionist painters from, from France that ever lived. And the, the works were arranged chronologically. So you walk in and it's kind of the early part of Impressionism. So you see paintings by people like Manet and Degas who are a little more on the realistic end. And as you move through the exhibit, it advances in time. And so toward the end, we were getting into uh, Renoir, Monet, Pissarro. And I just noticed as I walked through the exhibits the smile started to come on my face because the beauty of what I was looking at, especially in the later exhibits, just that raw play of light and color was just delightful. I wasn't trying to smile. I wasn't thinking about smiling, but I just noticed that the smile started growing on my face. That's the realm of sense pleasure. Beautiful things of the eye, beautiful sounds, beautiful touches. And it brings a certain uplift to the mind when that happens. Part of what makes our lay life you know, as pleasurable as it is are these different kinds of experiences. It could be having a, a very nice meal with friends in a good restaurant. It could be listening to your favorite band. It could be making love. It could be enjoying a nice sunset. When we come on retreat, there are a whole lot of these experiences that aren't accessible to us. 
the loss of those sense pleasures often is one of the harder adjustments that we make coming into the retreat experience. So you may find yourself missing friends from home, missing a comfortable chair, missing TV or movies or music or all the kinds of things you're used to. And the Buddha talked about this as part of the sorrow of the renunciate life. Giving up the pleasures of the lay life, coming into this Spartan kind of lifestyle, is one condition for sadness to come in here, a missing of those things. Over time, as we continue to practice, a lot of joy comes in from the meditation practice itself and more or less takes the place of the missing sense pleasures. But there's a transition period where the mind can be a little sad at the moving away from those pleasures of daily life. So as I mentioned, the Buddha had lots of warnings about sense pleasures that were directed to monastics. And we read these in the, in the teachings and we may get a little bit of a guilt complex about enjoying sense pleasures as lay people. Well, let me read you just one passage. There are many. I'll just read you one. This is from um, the first discourse the Buddha gave after his awakening, setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma, where he finds his five old friends in Sarnath and explains the Four Noble Truths. And before he explains the Four Noble Truths, here's how he prefaces it. Bhikkhus, these two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone forth into homelessness. What two? The pursuit of sensual happiness and sensual pleasures, which is the way of worldlings, ignoble, unbeneficial. And the pursuit of self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, and unbeneficial. Without veering toward either of these extremes, the Tathagata has awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision, knowledge, which leads to peace, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. But this is directed to those who have gone forth into homelessness, that is, to renunciates. And in teachings to those people, the Buddha also compares sense pleasures to a bone that has dried up and no longer has any food on it, or to a dream that's so fleeting and insubstantial. But for lay people, the Buddha did not condemn sense pleasures. In fact, he said that one who enjoys sense pleasures may be praised if the person has come lawfully by the wealth that he uses to enjoy the sense pleasures and shares that wealth to make others happy as well. So for lay people, sense pleasures are fine. For monastics, it's not so much that they're... um, really wrong is that they're kind of a diversion. We have a foot in both worlds. We have our lay lives out in our daily life. And when we come here, we have a renunciate lifestyle. So it's kind of interesting to be in this position where sometimes we're living more or less by monastic, a monastic ethos and a renunciate lifestyle, and at other times we're fully engaged in lay life. So I feel we have to listen to both sides of this discourse to know when sense pleasures are appropriate and when it's appropriate to let go as we're practicing here. We're practicing mostly in a renunciate style here. 
But to think that they're wrong for lay people would be misinterpreting the Buddha's teachings. They do give an uplift to the mind, and it's helpful to acknowledge that. Remember one time, uh, Sally and I were having lunch over our kitchen table, and we had just pulled some fresh chocolate chip cookies out of the oven, and I was eating one, and I remember saying to her, you know, it's really hard to be unhappy when you're eating a fresh chocolate chip cookie. So just tune into that way that delightful sensual experiences uplift the mind. And as lay people, we don't have to resist that or condemn it. But then the Buddha continues in that quote where he describes the five chords of sense pleasure as being lovely and agreeable. He continues in this way. Though some may say this is the supreme pleasure and joy that beings experience, I would not concede this to them. Why is that? Because there is another kind of happiness more excellent and sublime than that happiness. So sense pleasures are just the first in our list and there are other pleasures more sublime than that. So as I was observing this monk who I was around uh, last summer, I looked at his relationship to sense pleasures. As a monk, he doesn't really have a lot of them. So he was not very... I never saw him being attached. But I would see him enjoying food and having slight preferences for you know, this kind of food or that kind of food. But sense pleasures didn't play a big role in his life or his happiness. So the second area of uh, de- the development of happiness is around this word called merit. Merit is the translation of a Pali term, uh, punya, P-U-N-N-A, punya. A lot of Westerners have a real reaction to this term merit. Maybe it reminds us of, you know, somebody who was like the teacher's pet at school who always brought the apple in for the teacher. Maybe it reminds us of collecting merit badges when we were in Girl Scouts or Boy Scouts. It just seems a little too goody-goody. But this translation is in a lot of wide use in the Buddhist world. I don't think we're going to change it overnight. So I'm going to use it and, and live with it. But let me talk a little bit about what punya means. Punya is basically just skillful action or wholesome action, action from a good intention. And the understanding is that when we act from that kind of good intention, a caring intention, a loving intention, a giving intention, then happiness comes from that. You probably uh, all recall this famous quotation from the Dhammapada, which I think Carol mentioned uh, in her talk last night. This is from uh, the opening verses of the Dhammapada. All states come from mind, are preceded by mind, are ruled by mind. Speak and act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you like your shadow, unshakable. So punya just refers to these acts of speaking and bodily action that come from a pure heart and mind. And the Buddha said, if we always act from that kind of place, happiness comes to us, happiness follows us like our shadow, unshakable. So as practitioners, as we gain some trust in these teachings, 
we can take this message to heart as a kind of practice direction. And the more we have faith and trust in this as an avenue, and the more we're inclined to have our actions come from good intentions, loving intentions, generous intentions, we can create for our lives this kind of happy outcome. It's not mysterious. It's not random. Uh, it's karmic. It's just one of the outcomes of the law of karma. In the Buddha's lifetime, his basic instructions for lay people were to do meritorious actions. Most lay people in his time, most lay people in Buddhist countries today, are not interested in pursuing this kind of intensive meditation practice that we're engaged in here. If you go to Thailand or Burma or Sri Lanka, you'll see that the majority of lay people are more interested in uh, doing things like visiting the temples, the nunneries, the monasteries, and making offerings, doing some chanting, doing prayers. But they rarely sit down and practice in the way that we do. Originally, when I went to Thailand, I thought, wow, that's... Not, not taking the teachings very seriously. But actually there's a stream of the Buddha's teachings that is designed for lay people that emphasizes this kind of activity. So even in the Buddha's time, he didn't expect most lay people to practice like this. Generally at the time of the Buddha, if you wanted to practice like this, you became a renunciate. You became a nun or a monk, at least for a period of time. Because we have a foot in both worlds, I think it's really good for us to learn about the lay practices as well as these uh, more secluded practices. And I think as teachers, as we brought these teachings to the West, we haven't put very much emphasis on these lay practices, the practices of merit. So partly why I want to mention this tonight is to put it forth as another way that we can bring happiness into our lives as lay people. We don't have to wait for the next retreat. There are lots of things we can do in lay life that encourage this development. So when the Buddha talked about skillful action in terms of merit, he talked about three main activities or three main areas, which in the Pali are known as dana, sila, bhavana. Or in English, uh, dana is generosity. Sila is uh, virtue or wise conduct. Bhavana is a inter very interesting word we might translate as mental development or development of heart and mind. When bhavana is used in the sense of merit, it generally refers to the area of, of loving kindness and compassion. I'll say a little more about each of these three as excellent practices in, in lay life. Generosity is one of the uh, most accessible practices for us as lay people, and it was one the Buddha taught over and over and over again. It's the first of the ten paramis, which were described as the way to, uh, to Buddhahood. And it's something that you see a lot in Asia. You know, over the course of this retreat, Carol and I will both probably talk about our experiences of generosity around the monasteries in, in Asia, because it's quite extraordinary. And hanging around this scene for a long time, you just run into some kind of outrageous examples of generosity. 
I was coming back from a retreat one time, and a woman who had been on the retreat gave me a ride, and I got to hear her story. And her story was that she had been a management consultant, very highly uh, trained, highly functioning professional, until she was, I think, about 50. And in the course of her career, she had uh, saved quite a bit of money. She had invested in you know, the usual vehicles, plus she had bought property. She had invested a lot in real estate. And then she got into meditation practice in our style, Vipassana practice. And she was so inspired by the practice and its roots, because she'd visited uh, Asia before, that she decided she wanted to give all her money away and support especially nunneries and also monasteries in Thailand. So she went over to Thailand with the intention of retiring from her career, supporting the nunneries especially and also the monasteries, and then settling down in one of them to live and practice for the rest of her life. So she cashed in her securities. She sold all her real estate around the states except for one property, which she kept, took the money and started giving it away to these different uh, spiritual centers there. Settled in and prepared to live out her days in in that uh, probably a nunnery uh, environment. But then something happened. She got sick. And it was a kind of sickness that uh, was fairly serious, life-threatening, and she felt she needed to come back to the West to get treatment. So she uprooted herself from Thailand. She sort of lost her practice and living situation, came back here, and only had one property left. So she sold that to pay for her health care. She got well, fortunately, and then she resumed her career as a management consultant to support herself again. And she continued to do meditation practice. So it was at this point that I met her and heard her story. She'd given away all her money. She had gotten ill and she had to come out of her retirement to start over again. But what I found so so beautiful, she had given away hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't know the exact amount. It could have even been a million. I don't know. And then she was almost broke. And she had no regrets. She would have done the same thing again, she said. So for me, that was a really beautiful pointing to to the power of generosity. Because I could see how that, that impulse had sustained her over the years that she was planning it. You know, when you think about doing something generous, not something you have to do, you know, like giving an uncle a gift because it's his birthday, but something you really want to do. It's joyful to think about that, to think about a gift that would really please someone. When you buy it and then offer it, there's a wonderful feeling because it makes the other person happy. And then afterwards, when you reflect on it, you get that warm feeling all over again because it's a beautiful thing to recollect. So this is the force of generosity. It brightens the mind. It uplifts the mind. It gives us beautiful qualities to reflect on afterwards. And there's something else that generosity does that's more subtle, um, often not not seen or acknowledged that I want to point out. 
Generosity works because we're able to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes. We're able to look at someone else and understand what their need is. Because we can imagine, if I was in that situation, here's what I might feel and here's what I would need. The generosity really rests on this sense of connectedness or empathy. And then, we, you know, underlying it is something like, I have so much, they have a certain need, let me give some of what I have so that their life can be improved. So underlying generosity is this deep feeling of connectedness, and I would even go so far to say some intuition of oneness. We understand that we're really not separate from the person that we're giving to. We can feel their situation as though it was our own. So we act out of that sense of connection, and when we act and make the offering, that action sets a kind of karmic seed in the mind that implants that sense of connectedness even more deeply. Acting on a belief through our body and through our words implants that in our karmic stream more solidly. So that, that's part of the power of the act of giving. The second of the bases of merit, as the Buddha uh, called them, is this quality of uh, sila, uh, virtue, or wise conduct, or integrity. And we all know uh, what that feels like when we uh, violate it. We know that it causes harm to others and it causes a lot of uh, remorse in, in ourselves. And similarly, when we know someone who has a lot of integrity, it creates kind of a, a zone of safety around them. When you're around someone who's very careful with their conduct, you feel safe. The other people that come into contact with them feel safe. And then conduct is generally good around that person. I mean, how many people do cruel things around the Dalai Lama? I bet not very many. So that sense of integrity creates an atmosphere of safety. And everybody who comes into that presence can feel it or is touched by it benefits from it. The Buddha talked about this kind of integrity as being a different kind of gift. He says that when we follow care with our conduct, we're giving unlimited beings freedom from fear. This is the gift of harmlessness that we offer when we take care with our own conduct. The third of the um, basis of merit is this factor called bhavana or mental development. I just want to mention the etymology here. The word bhava in Pali means uh, being or existence or becoming. You know, it refers to uh, a quality of coming into existence. The bhavana makes an emphasis on the kind of process that's going on. So what I think of the word bhavana as pointing to is um, bringing into existence or bringing into becoming. It's a synonym for meditation often. So it really refers to when we do certain practices, we are bringing those qualities into existence in our hearts and minds. Bhavana is often associated in 
in this basis of merit framework with the practice of loving-kindness, generating a loving heart, a compassionate heart toward ourselves and others. So I love this image that when we practice loving-kindness, we're creating our heart. We're bringing our heart into being. And that is part of the, the gift that that practice offers us. This is really what we're doing with all of our meditation practice. We're bringing ourselves into being in a beautiful way. There was a French poet, um, Paul Valéry. He's an imagist poet, wrote toward the end of the 19th century. But one of his unpublished works from his lifetime were his private notebooks that he wrote in every day. He kept a series, long series of these things called cahiers, notebooks. And he did them very consciously as a spiritual practice. And when they were uh, published, I think posthumously, then you could read through and they were not just his poems, but they were his reflections on his readings and some poems and some essays and his thoughts on a wide, wide range of topics. But he did it as a spiritual practice. And he put it this way. He said, other people are writing books, but I am making my mind. That's the sense of bhavana. With bhavana, we make our mind and heart. In the, we shape it in the direction that we choose. And in this sense of merit, we shape it toward loving kindness, compassion, and connection. Here's what the Buddha said about the fruits of, um, of merit, of Dhanasila Bhavana. There are these streams of merit, streams of the wholesome, nourishments of happiness, which are heavenly, ripening in happiness, and which lead to whatever is wished for, loved and agreeable, to one's welfare and happiness. So it's understood in our tradition that these streams of merit lead to the fulfillment of our aspiration. Whatever that aspiration is. So the streams of merit may lead to different results for different people. They lead to what each of us wishes for. So if what we wish for is a comfortable life in the world and some material prosperity and basically harmony of mind, then the accumulation of merit can lead in that direction. If what we wish for is true freedom of heart and mind or liberation, then the streams of merit will lead in that direction. Of course, if also supported by wisdom. So these are very helpful things for us to develop and actualize. They lead to what is wished for. When I looked at um, the lifestyle of this monk that I was around uh, last summer, I could see the merit just being formed all the time with him. He was very generous with his time, with his teaching, with sharing his understanding. He was someone who took very little uh, personal time for himself, but was always involved in activities that gave to others, receiving people, reaching out, he had a very wide range of interests, um, both meditative and helping people in the broader society. So that giving in, in all these different ways was very active for him. 
So the third of the uh, avenues to happiness is this quality of concentration. Carol talked about this uh, quite a bit this morning, and I'll just mention a few more things now. Concentration is the translation of the Pali word samadhi. Uh, It's perhaps not a great translation, because concentration in English usually means a narrowing of attention. You know, like I'm concentrating on my homework, Uh, kids don't disturb me. But the Pali word samadhi doesn't mean a narrow focus. It can be a very broad focus, but it means that the, the mind's energy has become collected. And I know you all know this experientially. When you're in a moment of meditation and all your interest comes into the present moment, there's a sense that the mind becomes uh, strong. Because all that uh, energy we were giving away in past and future, in daydreams and fantasy, that all comes back and gets collected in this moment. That collection can happen around a narrow focus, like breath right at the tip of the nose, or it can happen in a very big, spacious, open, expansive kind of awareness. Collectedness can happen in either mode, which means samadhi can happen in either mode of being. Ajahn Sumedho has this nice description of one-pointedness. You know, normally we think one-pointedness means you bring your attention right down to just a little tiny sensation of breath or body or something happening in a very small area. But Ajahn Sumedho's definition of one point is the one point that includes everything. So what's the one point that includes everything? This moment. This moment includes it all. So when all the attention comes into this moment, then samadhi is strong in the mind. Then take a look at what that feels like. The mind gets a certain strength, stability, power, unshakableness. You know when that quality is present, thoughts can still arise and pass through, but they don't disturb us so much. The attention stays stable. So it's not that samadhi prevents any thoughts from arising, but this collectedness has enough power that it becomes uh, almost unshakable. At certain times, at certain depths, it is unshakable. This brings a great sense of well-being. And that, that unshakability brings a great sense of inner peace. So concentration is one of the direct routes that our meditation offers to inner peace. Concentration doesn't make for permanent peace. Concentration requires certain conditions. You know, the retreat setting is beautiful at creating those conditions. We tend to have strong experiences of concentration here. Back in daily life, it's more difficult to find this quality. So concentration is ultimately more fragile, more perishable than wisdom is. Nonetheless, as we develop it through our our practice, it becomes an ally, a source of strength, and a source of peace for us. Its real purpose is to act as a foundation for insight. 
because when the mind is stable, we can see clearly. And we'll get to that in a minute. But also just to appreciate, it brings its own sense of well-being that is very delightful. It's a pleasure to meet people with a lot of concentration. And one of those people is a Thai teacher named Ajahn Jumnian. I don't know if some of you have met him. He sometimes teaches at Spirit Rock. I don't think he's been here for a couple of years. He's getting older. But he's been here quite a bit in the past. Ajahn Jumnian is someone who I regard as a meditation prodigy. His father was a monk who disrobed and then got married. And uh, he and his wife had this child. I think he's about 70 now. So he would have been born, you know, 1940 or something. And when he was four years old, his father was encouraging him to meditate, and he hated it. But his father made him, and his father was a monk, and he believed in it. So he said, sit down, just be with your breath, follow it. Ajahn Jumnian just wanted to go outside and play, you know, with the other kids, and play in the neighborhood, and he hated meditation. But his father forced him. So one day as he was meditating, he went into this spontaneous absorption. His concentration just developed on the spot. He went inside, and nothing his parents could do pulled him out. So his father knew what was going on because he had been a strong meditator himself. He knew that this young boy had fallen into a strong state of concentration, but the boy wouldn't surrender it. So the father kept talking to him, saying, you're in a strong state of meditation. Come out. You know, you can find it again. Don't worry. Ajahn Jumnian wouldn't, wouldn't leave. And, of course, you know what would reach a young boy. His mother talked to him. So his mother finally sweet-talked him and told him how worried they were about him. And her heart was heavy with worry. And finally he came out responding to her, to her love. Once they realized that he had this talent, they began to train him both in Vipassana style and concentration styles of meditation. And he developed a very strong concentration practice. You can feel that in him today. He has very high energy. I've never seen him get tired. I've never seen him unhappy. He says that he hasn't had anger in 25 years. And I believe it. He's, every time I see him, he's energetic and happy. So when he was first coming to Spirit Rock, we thought, well, maybe he'd like to go out sightseeing in the area, you know, Point Reyes, Golden Gate Bridge, San Francisco. So people would ask him, you know, would you like to go to see the ocean? Would you like to go to see the city? Would you like to go to see the bay? And he, his answer would always be the same. He'd say, you know, if you want to take me somewhere, I'm happy to go. But are there people who'd like to hear the Dharma? Then I'd like to teach them, you know, the Dharma. But if you want me to go, I'll be happy there. And I'll be happy teaching the Dharma. I'll be happy anywhere. So it's all okay with me. But there were usually people who wanted to hear the Dharma, so Ajahn Jamnian would, would give teachings. But he had a kind of a bubbly, kind of infectious energy that partly came from his depth of concentration and loving-kindness. Loving-kindness is a path to concentration as well. So just to know this is one of the factors that develops uh, very naturally on these kinds of retreats. I think Carol mentioned that this morning in response to a question. What you're doing now in your Vipassana practice 
will develop concentration very strongly as long as you apply that moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness. So concentration will develop for all of you while you're here. Some people choose to take a long period of time like this and um, devote it to especially strengthening this factor of concentration. And Carol mentioned some specific practices called samatha practices that we offer. And for those, there will be a few people on this retreat practicing those particular kinds of practice um, out of a particular interest. But that quality will develop for all of you. So I'd just like to read one description from the Buddha about one of the states that develops from strong concentration. This is a description of the first jhana. There are eight jhanas in all, so this is the entry point. She enters and abides in the first jhana with rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. She makes the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion drench, fill, steep, and pervade her body so that there is no part of her whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure. When this experience is accessible, you know, imagine your whole body being filled with rapture and pleasure and being so fully in the present moment that there's no worry about the future and no regret about the past. That state brings a certain degree of happiness. Again, it's temporary. So we can't pin our whole meditation career on temporary states. But it's a very strong experience and gives a lot of confidence, a lot of happiness. So one of the things I noticed about the monk that I was with is that um, he had a lot of inner peace and a lot of stillness. Even in a busy uh, day where he had to go out, give teachings outside, come back, give teachings, meet people, film videos, his mind was very balanced, steady, and still through it all. So a lot of practice had gone into that. The fourth of the areas of the development of happiness is insight, or we could call this wisdom. We're going to be talking about this a lot over this month. This is the theme of this retreat, really. So I'm not going to spend much time on it tonight. Just to say that as we pay close mindful attention to our experience, we feel its individual characteristics. A breath is long or short, it's relaxed or it's constricted, it's calming or it's agitating. We feel each breath differently. But as we pay close attention, we also start to notice the universal characteristics of the phenomena that we're paying attention to. So we notice every phenomenon we pay attention to is of the nature of arising and passing. Everything comes and goes. This comes very naturally out of bare moment-to-moment -moment attention to what we're experiencing. As we notice this coming and going of everything, the truth of impermanence just becomes more and more obvious. Sometimes it's presented in dramatic ways in our practice. Sometimes it's presented in more subtle ways. But that truth comes home to us, I'd say, every day in a long retreat like this. As we see that again and again at deeper and deeper levels, we see everything's coming and going. What sense does it make to hang on to what's naturally passing? 
It really doesn't. So we learn not to cling as much, not to hold on as much, because nothing is lasting very long. That light approach to our experience gives a lightness of mind. And that was another thing I very much appreciated about this monk. He didn't seem to take anything too seriously. He touched everything he did with a very light heart and a light gesture. A lot of ease out of that understanding of the nature of things. The fifth element, avenue to happiness, the quality of awakening itself. As insight deepens, stillness settles in very new and, you could say, unshakable forms. There's the possibility of the mind opening to that which is unchanging beyond the phenomena that are arising and passing. This is what's referred to in our tradition as the process of awakening, the opening to this unconditioned element. When that awakening happens at different degrees for different individuals, it has the power of removing from the mind altogether certain kinds of stains or fetters that bring suffering. So that in the end, it has the potential to remove all the causes of unhappiness from the mind stream permanently. And that is what the Buddha referred to as the complete end of suffering. Possible through the deepening of insight and this experience of awakening. This is really what's referred to as the experience of full liberation, full awakening, or full enlightenment. When the mind is so free from the causes of suffering that it can really be said to be completely released and free. So I asked this monk about the experience of freedom, the causes of freedom in this, to this degree, and his response was, the primary cause of that freedom is happiness. So all the other practices that we do, enjoyment of our lay life, the development of merit, cultivating the quality of concentration and developing wisdom through insight, all those streams can go into the access to and the release of this factor of liberation, the highest kind of happiness that the Buddha talked about. So let's just please sit together for a minute in silence and let the words settle. So we have about 30 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.